Uh, so one thing that uh, I think is really dangerous that we were alluding to earlier is that AI is magic, right? Like this is not magic, it's just math, basically. And it's math that sometimes makes mistakes, but uh, can really make an impact. It's not necessarily gonna do everything a lawyer does, but it can help a lawyer complete tasks in uh, less time and even do uh, pieces of their work more accurately. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is Noah Weisberg, co-founder and CEO of Kira Systems, an AI software company that helps thousands of professionals accurately extract information from contracts in 20 to 90% less time. In this episode, we'll be talking about contract analysis, artificial intelligence, and how technology might help your law firm in ways you've never imagined. Noah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I always enjoy talking to you, Jack. Yeah, I look forward to the conversation as well, Noah. Um, Noah, first of all, what's on your mind most right now? Um, listen, it's pretty hard not to be thinking about the current situation, right? Like, uh, I am typically someone who'd be traveling a lot for work, uh, and I'm not right now. Um, I'm actually enjoying that quite a bit. Like, it is really, really, really wonderful to be getting all the extra time with my family, uh, getting to see all my kids do super fun stuff, and just even watching them on school calls is really a treat and one that I know that I would not be getting if it wasn't for this. Uh, so I'm appreciating that. At the same time, it's like not an ideal time, right? Like this definitely, um, you know, our business is 235 people or so. And uh, thinking about how those people are doing, some of them really well, some of them, you know, having a harder time with this and yeah. thinking about how we can make our business thrive through this more challenging time. Uh, so that's mostly what I'm thinking about, but I'm having more fun during this time than I expected, uh, largely because of just getting to spend all the extra time with my kids and wife. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I like you spent a lot of time on the road and it's, it's a, a bit discombobulating to have all of that. You realize just how much time that takes when you, you kind of net out all the time to and from the airport and sometimes all the time you lose reacclimatizing to time zones and stuff like that. It's oh yeah, like I'm sleeping like so much better right now and everything. I will say like one of the things that I really miss about it though, like all the in-person contact, like I think I'm able to do a lot of stuff pretty well during it. Um, but I miss the kind of serendipitous conversations that I'd have right. in the office when I went in. And I yeah. miss, uh, I used to spend a lot of my visiting time. We had employees in a bunch of different places like, UK, US especially, and I miss um, spending time with them, but also spending a lot of time with customers and prospects and just really getting a feel for the problems that they were dealing with. And I still have some of that, but it's a, it feels like it's a lot less now than it would have been like, okay, I'm in Frankfurt or I'm in Mumbai or I'm in yeah. New York or Boston, like who should I go see? And I would go and see people and it was really, like you just would learn a lot from those visits. Yeah, you need uh, or Sao Paulo or wherever it was. Exactly. Like, really would learn a lot of those ones. And I don't have that right now. And hopefully it'll just go back to normal and I'll be doing that again soon. And the, you know, however many months I'm taking off now won't be that much of a problem. But I, I do miss that. 
Yeah, the I mean, both at the workplace where you miss the water cooler yeah. conversations, and and totally. when you get on a plane, think about the okay, I'm I'm in this far flung part of the world. Who am I going to see? I, I I really miss that as well. Uh, so Noah, oh, yeah. in in this, <laughs> and here we are, and and but otherwise we wouldn't have had this conversation. So let's totally. look at the those silver lining. Uh, one of the things we're we're trying to do in in this series of the podcast is dive into the tools and technologies that would help lawyers, you know, anytime pre or post pandemic, but maybe tools and technologies that are especially relevant in the, in the COVID-19 crisis. And I, I think AI uh, and AI tools certainly fit in that category, but there's a lot to demystify about AI. And that, that's one of the things I'm hoping to do in our conversation today and, and talk just at a practical level, how the average lawyer might deploy some of these AI tools to their practice. So I, I look forward to diving into that with you, but to set the stage a little bit, tell us your, your story. Tell us the story of Cura Systems. You're a lawyer, you know, like uh, many lawyers, I think you saw an abundance of inefficient processes at the, the, the law firm you were working at and decided to, to found a, a legal tech company to solve that problem. I, I'd love to hear your more in-depth telling of that story. Uh, it's true. So I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at Wild Gottschall in New York, and um, I liked it. It was a good job. Like I found it intellectually interesting, liked the people that I worked with, thought it was challenging. Uh, but I also knew it wasn't what I felt like doing for the rest of my life. And I thought there was real opportunity around the idea that junior lawyers like I had been and by the time I left, like I was supervising, spent vast amounts of time doing work that they hated, that they screwed up, and that was super high volume and cost clients a ton and that clients hated paying for. And at, I think when I was a junior, I was a mere 300 or 350 US dollars an hour. And uh, I think now that rate would be even higher, but it just felt like if you could make an impact on accelerating people at that kind of cost, that there was business there. And so uh, in 2010, I quit and I sat and I thought, and I thought about a few different ideas of things that I thought fit that theory of spots where junior lawyers spend a lot of time. And I just didn't think they'd be great businesses, though at least one of them has kind of turned into a solid business and I'm happy to uh, for some other people, and I'm happy to, or something along those lines has turned into a solid business, I'm happy to see that. But uh, started thinking about contracts and realized that they fit the theory perfectly, that lawyers spend vast amounts of time reviewing contracts, right? Like it's just uh, a huge, huge, huge time sink, uh, number one. Number two, that even at kind of the world's finest law firms where you're drawing students from the best schools, you've got the best grades, and you're giving them all the training you possibly can, people still screw it up all the time. Um, but then number three was realizing that there's lots of contract review situations where people are looking through contracts, trying to find the same information in them over and over and over again. And because of that, because they were looking for the same things over and over again, uh, we thought there might be opportunity to build software to help them find that information and pull it out really fast. So back in January 2011, I got together with my co-founder, Dr. Alexander Hudak, and Alex has a PhD in computer science from the University of Waterloo, which you would know what it is, but for American listeners, it's like the MIT of Canada. Yeah. Um, and we set to work, and we thought 
based on talking with Alex and other guys with CompSci PhDs from Waterloo, that it would take us four months to harness the state of the art in machine learning and apply it to the problem we were working on. So figured it'd take us six months to raise money if we went outside and for venture funding. And so we're like, well, take us six months to raise money and then another four months to build the software, or we can just spend four months, build the software, and then it'll be a lot easier to raise money after that. So we decided to kind of put our heads down and just work. And so we did it. And what we found was that uh, after about six months, the software didn't work. And it, it wasn't close to working. At that point, Alex wasn't sure if we had another three months for 10 years before <laughs> the software got to work. And so at that point, we're like, um, you know, this is not going to be a good VC pitch, right? Like at time zero, when we were first starting out, you could have maybe made a pitch. Like we yeah, had a background, a, like an interesting problem, like it was legal tech, which wasn't so hot, but still like there was a there there. But if you're in the shark tank, you say, I don't know if it's three months or 10 years. Yeah, I'm out, yeah, totally. I'm like, out is the response you hear from everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think shark tank was on that, but it like, <laughs> didn't even take that kind of thing to just be like, this is not going to be appealing to be like, sometime in the next 10 years, we've got this technology and it's going to work great. Um, so we just were like, well, we think it's still going to work. And we just kept our heads down and kept working. And by about spring of 2013, we got the software to work pretty well. Uh, to the extent that our customers now tell us they review a contract in 20 to 90% less time, but they do it with the same or even better accuracy. A lot of the time places won't necessarily admit better accuracy because that would suggest that the accuracy before was not perfect, but, um, but we hear very positive reports on that. Uh, but we had a second problem in 2013, which is that no one had ever paid us money, right? And so our thought then was like, you go and do a VC pitch and you say, well, I've been running this business for two and a half years. No one's ever paid us anything, but that's totally going to change. Like hourly billing lawyers would love to be more efficient. Um, and it, uh, so we, we, again, just didn't try to make the pitch. We tried to get people to pay us money. Uh, we went deeper in our own savings, in fact, and hired out some additional developers to help us uh, polish up the product more and make it better. And by late 2013, we started to get little bits of revenue. Um, and same thing through early 2014. And then summer 2014, things started taking off. And we went from being four people that summer to eight people by the end of the year to like 35 people by the end of 2016 when we started to get a bunch of firms signing on. Um, and same thing over 2017, started to get like a lot of firms and even accounting firms and companies signing on. And by summer 2018, we took in our first outside capital, uh, which was 15 million US dollars from inside venture partners uh, for like a minority stake in the company. And by that point, we were like 110 people or so. Um, we kept growing since then. We're now like 230, 235-ish range. Uh, we've got a lot of people using the software. So uh, most of our lawyers historically have been larger firms. It probably stems from just my experience being a larger firm lawyer, and it just was the group that we went to first. Uh, I also think they have probably a little bit more resources maybe than smaller firms to experiment with stuff that's not as fully baked. And definitely the software in its earlier uh, incarnations uh, had a lot of... Uh, room for improvement in it, but also like delivered enough value that people still went with it despite the others right. room for improvement. 
but now we've got a majority of the world's largest law firms using our software. So seven of the Vault 10 US firms, uh, I think 11 of the top 12 UK firms by revenue, um, five of the seven sisters in Canada. Um, we've got thousands of accountants uh, using the software um, and have been for years doing things like audits, uh, also consulting work out of the big four. And then we have companies using the software directly. Um, with lawyers though, it's not just uh, large law firms. One of the things we've started to notice over time was that uh, this was the kind of thing that could actually provide a real advantage for smaller firm lawyers too, that it kind of leveled the playing field for them. Like things like due diligence could be the type of thing that could make it very hard for a smaller firm lawyer to um, do a bigger deal, right? Because they just wouldn't have the manpower that a firm like my old one did. Right. And what, uh, what Kira can do is just enable individual people to do work more efficiently and get through a lot more so they don't necessarily need a horde of people. And we thought that that could be more advantageous for smaller firms. So this year and last year, we started really trying to add some small firms and have been able to happily, but hopefully uh, a lot more of that to come because we think it, uh, it's great, you know, it's a lot of small firm lawyers and they do really interesting work and it'd be really exciting to help empower them. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point to make. And you know, there's often been, uh, you know, perception that some of these AI tools only apply to a large firm context or that only large firms can uh, can utilize them. But the reality is, I, I think that they're getting easier and easier to use and, and, and more accessible, both from a uh, ease of use standpoint, as well as a, a cost standpoint to, to solos and small firms. Yeah, I think for us, we had to spend a lot of time, uh, first off, just polishing up the product a lot more. Like a big firm, you might have like one person or even several people who are in charge of like, you know, the knowledge management or IT side right. and helping the firm implement it. Um, and that's obviously not going to work at a five-person firm, right? Like, just not at all. Uh, so we definitely needed the software and like documentation and the like to be more robust. And I think it is more robust now, number one, but then number two, we also need to think about like the right pricing model for a 3000 lawyer law firm might not be the same pricing model that you use for a three lawyer law firm. And that maybe you need to make it a lot simpler. So we put a lot of work into that last year and we think we have something more appealing, but, uh, hopefully. So tell us a little bit more about the, the problem you're solving and how you solve it. When you talk about contract review and you talk about the way that AI is layering in to help that process, what, what's this look like? Tell us a little bit about what this looked like before your technology and before AI and what it looks like today when, when the process is augmented with what, what Kira can provide. So when you think about contract review, there's really two different things that come to mind. And I think it's really important to be clear that we only really help with one of those two parts. Um, so the first type of contract review that I think a lot of non-corporate lawyers think of when they think of contract review is like, I have a merger agreement or a purchase agreement or an employment agreement or an NDA or a license agreement, right? Like Clio has a license agreement and I'm trying to decide whether or not this license is a good deal for me or is it a good deal for my client? And there are issues in it and you got to look at those, right? And that's kind of contract negotiation type review. Um, there are some companies that work in that space, uh, LawGeeks, Legal Sifter, uh, Legal Robot, um, 
and I think it's an important space, right? Like there is a lot of opportunity to make people faster at that type of work. Uh, what we've always been focused on is contract data extraction. So you have a pile of contracts and you're trying to figure out what they say so that you can either uh, have data about it, right? Like so if you're populating a contract management system or so that maybe you can do a transaction, right? Like if you're trying to buy a company, you need to know what their contracts say about assignment and change of control, maybe exclusivity, most favorite customer pricing. Um, and then also so that you can help people with other specific projects. Like one of the things that comes up right now is um, you have manufacturers or retailers who are thinking about force majeure, right? So force majeure is people who can't uh, complete their contracts because of circumstances, right? So, you know, there's a government order that says that you can't run your factory, but yet you have commitments to deliver things out of your factory. Um, is that a force majeure, right? Well, you might think like, of course it's a force majeure. Of course, like the government's saying I can't go to my factory, so I can't perform. Uh, therefore, I shouldn't be bound by my contract. But like, it really depends what the contract itself says. Like, this is going to be a question that's going to come down to what the words of the contract are, and to know your sort of exposure there and your rights there, you got to actually review the contracts, right? So that's like one type of project where someone's got to go through a whole pile of contracts and just pull out some very specific language, like who are these contracts with, and what do they say about force majeure? And so you could read through the contracts and that might be practical if you don't have too many contracts, but if you have a lot of contracts, um, our technology can really help you do that work a lot quicker and more efficiently. Another type of project uh, you might see right now would be someone like going through and thinking about like termination for convenience and efficient breach. Like, I don't know if it's as much an issue with the way Clio does your contracts and I don't think anybody would be looking to cancel their Clio contract, especially in these times. Right. There are pieces of software, like if you were selling your software to like Marriott or American Airlines, like those firms are trying to cut massive amounts of costs. Right. And so if you're American Airlines and you have a million contracts, right, because they probably do have like a million contracts, uh, trying to figure out what your contracts say about termination of convenience is and like what the effects of termination or breach of the contract are are pretty useful pieces of information that can allow you to shed spend really quickly. And so the only really practical way to get through a million contracts in a short amount of time is to use tech like ours. On the flip right. side, if your customers, like if you were a different kind of software company, it'd be pretty useful to look at all of your contracts and figure out which of your customers had a termination for convenience so that you could know that those customers need extra special attention and you shouldn't assume that that money stream is just going to keep flowing from that. Yeah, there's so, two sides of every contract to be thinking about here. On you know, on, yeah. on one side, you can be thinking defensively and know what's your risk around yeah. you know termina termination for convenience, for example. And on the other side, you can you can think about what's the opportunity to uh, to scale back. So, Noah, you know, one thing I'd love for you to elaborate on a little bit is where, where's the the magic dust in all of this when you're talking about the machine learning and AI that's being applied here. Is it, is it the machine understanding, for example, that this paragraph of the contract uh, relates to termination for convenience, for example? Uh, is, it, is it extracting exactly what the terms of the termination for convenience are? Can you just tell us a little bit more about where the, 
where the machine learning is, is happening and where the, where the magic happens? So, so the overall software itself, which might be helpful for just answering the question, you take a bunch of contracts and you put it into the software. You can do it through an integration, like you can pull contracts in directly from Interlinks or HiQ or something like that, uh, or via an API, or you could just dump, like drag and drop a folder or a zip file in, and you tell the software what you like it to find, like I'd like to find termination of convenience, or force majeure, or assignment, and the software goes and pulls that information out automatically. So the AI magic, such as, and I would never use magic for AI, <laughs> is- uh, Air quotes, software. we're using air yeah, quotes just to be clear. Yeah, totally. yeah, the I magic that is AI. Uh, you and I, I think, spoke about this, but like the idea that people think that this stuff is magic is super harmful. Right. And we could talk for hours on that, I think. But um, as a broad idea, what we've done is we have trained algorithms. Like those years back from like 2011 to 2013, we were doing two things and there's still things that we do today. So my co-founder at a PhD in computer science was taking algorithms and an algorithm is just fancy name for a computer program, right? Taking algorithms and getting them really good at learning from examples. Right, so, and then what we would do is we would feed examples of termination for convenience clauses. And this is what I spent 80% of my first sort of year and a half, two years at the company doing, was just finding examples of termination for convenience clauses, which we then feed into the algorithms at, again, computer program. And it would learn from those examples what a termination for convenience clause looked like and then when it sees a new contract, it's thinking about like, is this a termination for convenience clause or is this something else? And it's running a whole bunch of uh, different kind of models on all the text that it sees and then pulling out provisions that it thinks are relevant. And then- uh, And this, so what you've described is in the machine learning world, the training process you're training with- Yeah, it's supervised. Labeled so it's supervised. data, right? Yeah, it's supervised learning on labeled training data. Um, there's also, uh, interestingly, there's like unsupervised stuff that layers in underneath the supervised stuff. So uh, things that we've done where we haven't exactly said like governing law, if it says Georgia or if it says Delaware or if it says Ontario, all of those things are equivalent, but it, there's other unsupervised pieces that you can do that can kind of build that type of technology in. Uh, so those, those pieces interacting together. So the, the the use case, one use case we think about here is your United Airlines. You want to under you've got a million contracts with your different suppliers of various kinds, and you want to see which of my contracts have a termination for convenience clause. And in a matter of seconds, Kira could yeah, pull so those gonna, contracts up. Yeah, so it may take a bit longer than that to run a million contracts just as like a practical thing. But with AWS, you can get stuff uh, and sort of cloud scaling. You can get it cranking pretty fast. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of situations when it just that knowledge of what the contracts actually say can allow people to make more informed decisions, right? Like without the technology, you might just take a guess. So as an example, and this is like very much more like the big firm, massive company type example, uh, but we had a large German auto manufacturer that was trying to do a uh, reorganization, sort of corporate reorganization type transaction and uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of value uh, sort of being moved around. 
And in a typical deal like that, you'd review in the 20,000 to 200,000 contracts, which is probably like a, the 200,000 contract range, you're probably talking about $50 million in legal spend um, to do that review. And they were sitting there and they're like, well, we think we have a million contracts. So if we review 200,000, that's actually quite mediocre, right? Like we won't know what's in the other 800,000. And so they decided to use tech. And in fact, it turned out they had like 4 million contracts and they were able to review the 4 million contracts in the course of a year with not that many people doing the work. Um, it was not a cheap project for them, but it was sort of affordable and it got done on schedule despite the project kind of being 4X bigger than they thought it would be. And in that case, they were able to be a lot more informed. Like they found things that I don't think they necessarily, in spots they didn't necessarily expect to. And I think there's like, even at small law, I think there's the same sort of thing happens all the time. Like when I was a lawyer at Wild, which is very far from being small law, we limited our reviews all the time, right? Like you do, be looking at a company you were gonna, helping someone acquire, and you wouldn't look at everything in that company. You sort of pick out which ones contracts you thought were material, mostly like the high dollar value contracts, but theoretically also contracts that said something sketchy in them. Of course, you can't really know if they say something sketchy unless you read them and we weren't right. reading. But, um, but you, I think that's the way most lawyers do it at any level, right? Like you're not gonna review all the contracts because no client feels like spending the money and taking the time to have you review all the contracts. You don't review all the contracts, you just review this little tiny sample of them, right? Like maybe it's 5%, 10% is pretty common. Right. And you do a review there and you give the client the results. But in fact, they don't know what's in the 90% in the 95%. And they don't know, not because there couldn't be useful information in there. They don't know because it's just too expensive to get it done. Like just as an example, like if you were a company, like for us, Cure Systems, like we don't just blindly sign contracts, right? Like we actually review the contracts. But if we were to buy a company, like if we didn't, if we weren't sort of careful on doing that review when we bought them, we might as well just not bother reviewing any contracts and we go through because we don't know there's lots of companies that aren't as careful as we are on their contracting. And the company that we're buying could be one of those places that aren't that careful. And right? all, you, all you need is one contract where they've assigned their IP or yeah, like something. The real, yeah. yeah, like the really, really, really scary one are some of the restrictive covenants or uh, most favorite customer pricing, right? Because there's times when like, if you bring in affiliates, right? Like if you say like, you know, Clio um, will only buy beer or not even Clio, like Clio is going to buy, uh, uh, I don't know, legal ease or in the news these days for providing uh, the services to Ross that Westlaw is suing them over, right? So, so they're a distressed company and Jack's like, let's jump on them. Right, so say you're gonna buy legally is apart from all like indemnification and other problems that it would come along with. Um, say they have something in there that says legal ease will only buy beer from Labatt's, okay? And like Labatt's is the exclusive beer provider to the company. And say the company is badly defined, right? Like it's not just legal ease, but it's legal ease and it's affiliates, right? And affiliates means under common control. And so Clio buys legal ease and all of a sudden, like, you know, the beer bashes that you guys used to have every Friday or whatever for your team and will have again when you get back into the office, like, they can only sell Labatt's. Labatt's is fine beer, but, you know, in snobby Vancouver beer land, I doubt it 
uh, it cuts, you know, it makes the level. And you might be forced into it because you bought this company that had a really quirky clause in a small contract that was badly drafted and you just never saw it and your lawyers never saw it because they never bothered to read it. And even though you have like a fancy good law firm doing your work, like if they don't review the contract, they can't know it's there. And that yeah. was kind of like a funny one and whatever the Cleveland employees would deal with that. So <laughs> I'm sure it'd be fine. Right. But, um, yeah, the but stakes are, the stakes are high though. And all you need is flag. one clause and one contract. Yeah, and the good thing about it is it's like really an opportunity for lawyers to sort of be more efficient uh, and provide better value for their clients, but not necessarily get less money, right? Like, so this means, so we have, uh, we ran a test at a big firm and the big firm took two juniors and they had uh, one of them reviewing, or both of them reviewing for assignment, one of them using our software, one of them doing it the traditional way. The one who did it the traditional way took six hours to get through the project one who used our software took two and a half hours and it turned out he was actually more accurate too. Um, so you'd think on the basis of that, that like, whoa, does this firm now need 60% less juniors now that they've licensed Kira? And like what I was just talking about is the reason that they don't, right? That what they can do is they can actually expand the scope of the review, right? So instead of just doing 5%, they can do 25% and maybe even charge clients more for that. But their clients can be happier because they're actually getting good value out of the lawyers. So let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about AI more in general. And, and you, you've been in this space for, for years. You, you've seen the highs and lows. You've seen the, the peak of the hype cycle. And I, I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, Noah, what are the biggest misconceptions about AI in the in the legal industry and, and, and what can you do to help maybe correct some of those misperceptions? Uh, so one thing that uh, I think is really dangerous that we were alluding to earlier is that AI is magic, right? Like this is not magic, it's just math basically. And it's math that sometimes makes mistakes but uh, can really make an impact. It's not necessarily gonna do everything a lawyer does but it can help a lawyer complete tasks in uh, less time and even do uh, pieces of their work more accurately. Uh, so I think that's piece number one. Uh, piece number two is that it is um, an artificial intelligence, right? So uh, that has like a couple implications. One is that it gets to a result that a human would, or maybe even a better than human result uh, in a lot of cases, but it doesn't get there in the same way a human would. Right, so there's times when you can look at it and just as you think about seeing the system make a bad result and you look at it as human, you're like, oh, I just can't understand that because it's not a mistake that I would ever make. Um, and it's like, well, it's not you that's inside there. It's not like a random junior lawyer that we've trapped inside like an AWS server. Right. It is <laughs> like just a totally an intelligence that's arriving at the same or better answer, but it's getting there a completely different direction. Uh, or a completely different way than you right. would have. Uh, and then a third thing that's kind of correlated with that is that uh, we, we also tend to sort of anthropomorphize these AIs, right? Like, and they're given people's names, like Kira too, right? Like Kira could be a person's name, but Watson or the like, where like you really think of them as like people. Um, 
And a person, like we've got Jack sitting on the other side and Jack's got all these skills, right? Like he can run an amazing practice management co software company. Uh, but maybe like Jack painted that pretty picture on the wall behind him and he can write a book. And maybe Jack's an awesome like badminton player. and He's a good dad to his family, right? Like Jack has lots of aspects to you that make you great, not just the one running a business. Um, and so you kind of think about that with software too, right? Like you expect that since an AI program can win a Jeopardy or a Go, or it can drive a car, that that same AI can do this other thing that seems way less complicated than driving a car. And it's just not the way it works, right? Like these AIs tend to be good at very narrow individual tasks. Um, so for example, for us, uh, it took us like we thought we'd be able to take off the shelf AI and apply it to our problem. And in fact, that was where, instead of it taking four months to do that, it took two and a half years with a guy with a CompSci PhD from a great school right. working on that. And now we've got a bunch more of them working at that. Like that was really complicated. Um, on the other hand, at a point we decided to add document level classification into our software. So our software will like tell you what type of document you're looking at, like if it's an employment contract or a lease. Uh, and it'll tell you what language the contract might be in, like is it in English or in German or Portuguese. And that specific functionality, the document level classification, was something where we were able to take it off the shelf. And we had someone uh, on our team who was fresh out of like U of T's computer engineering program or computer science program, and he did it in like three weeks. Right, so there are situations where uh, some tasks can be done really quickly, but other ones that seem like they should be simple aren't necessarily. And just because software is really good at doing, AI is really good at doing one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good at doing anything else. So, so no, you made a really important point in, in that last comment around the fact that the way machine learning algorithms work, the way AI works is not some radically advanced version of the way a human being might solve a problem. It's often arriving at the solution in a completely different way. The way that Deep Blue, for example, solves how to make its next move is wildly different than the way Gary Kasparov might have been evaluating his next move. So talk a little bit about that and how AI is, is just different in the way it works at a mechanical level. Yeah, so uh, great point. When I uh, was playing chess with my seven-year-old last night, like the things that I was thinking about were maybe four different choices for a potential move, right? right? Whereas Deep Blue is going and cranking 10,000 different possibilities and applying it at that. And it's not necessarily to say that the Deep Blue approach, which sounds really impressive, and but no doubt would kick my ass, but um, it's not necessarily to say that that's a better approach. Like a lot of the times what people are seeing in chess is that, um, you know, an individual player versus a robot, like they both come out in not too well, like the robot will often win in that situation. But now there are people who are better at playing against robots and sort of figured out how to do that well. But uh, the combination that beats either the individual or the robot is an individual playing with the assistance of a robot. Like there's centaur right. chess, right? Where people are assisted by it. And I think, Kira, which I believe to be among the most used legal AI applications, is pretty similar, right? Like we're not suggesting that you give us all your contracts and that Kira will just crank through it and it's done, right? Like you'll notice I was saying people are doing the work in 20 to 90% less. So if you think about doing the work in 
40% less time, that still means a person spending 60% of the time that they would have already uh, without the software. And the software is really being a supplement to people, not a replacement. And I think that's the case in a lot of AI in law spaces, right? Like the software is not a replacement for people. It's just helping them do their work and it's enhancing their ability to do their work, but, but not like doing the work entirely. Uh, and there we go back to that magic point that we were talking about before. Like one of the spots where you can end up in trouble is when people have these expectations that AI software is magic and they're disappointed when it's only getting them 60% of the way to the finish line and not 100% of the way to the finish line. Right. You think about like something that gets you 60% of the way to the finish line is amazing, right? Like that means like you're- and we, we often talk about this concept of robot lawyers and maybe that's the wrong metaphor because we, we, we talk, this is really an exoskeleton. This is something that gives- lawyers superpowers and lets them move faster and lets them and, and be more accurate too like let them be more accurate things that they might have otherwise missed if they didn't have it yeah completely but in a lot of cases it's not a replacement it's just an enhancement and that's very much how cure is primarily used right now so i'm curious Noah, one of the comments we've seen made about the the covid19 crisis and the effects it's having on many different industries is the fact that it's accelerating change, which was already underway. And, and AI, I think, was certainly a, a transformation and the adoption of AI was a, a transformation that we saw beginning in, uh, in legal. And, and you're obviously at the forefront of that. From, from your perspective, and we're, we're only two or three months into the, the pandemic at this point, so it's maybe early days, but I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is and if you're seeing some of that acceleration happening when it comes to AI adoption in legal. So when you're talking to me six months ago or today, uh, the main thing I'd say is that uh, AI for contract review is going to be ubiquitous um, in the same way that a bunch of other legal tech innovations have uh, sort of law practice innovations have become ubiquitous. So. Uh, whether it's computerized legal research, where large firms used to have libraries that span the floor, right? And now the librarians are in a sort of office. Um, or thinking about virtual data rooms. So when I started practicing law, like five years before I practiced, uh, started in 2006, five years before that, like there was maybe the odd virtual data room. Like it got used, but it wasn't that common. When I was in, I definitely went to some physical data rooms, like I remember going to Pittsburgh and St. Louis and like hanging out in an office for a week and getting pulling through physical folders of files. But a lot of my work was in virtual data rooms uh, to now where like, I, I get the sense there are still physical data rooms, but it's, it's really rare. Yeah. Uh, also blacklining software too, right? Like the, when I talked to lawyers who were a couple generations ahead of me, uh, they would talk about doing the red line comparisons between documents. And that is something that we never, like I probably did it five times over my, my years of practice, right? Uh, and I think contract analysis software is going to the same place. Like the majority of world's biggest firms uh, and highest end firms use this technology and, um, and that getting to ubiquity is something that we were focused on before. And uh, so now, as I think about it, and what's COVID gonna change, it's, I think it will accelerate that. I think if you're a lawyer coming out of this, like, I don't know how much of an effect COVID's gonna have. Like, there's part of me that thinks this is gonna have this big, you know, changing effect, and there are all these people who maybe didn't access this technology who now have to. Um, but there's other people who may go back to just 
doing things the same way they were. Like maybe we'll pop out of this in a month, probably not, and everything will go back to normal and people will just forget about it. Uh, like that's a possible outcome. Like you could believe that that's a possible outcome. Uh, for me, like if I'm playing chess against my son or cards against my son or anything like that, like I like to play probabilities and just think about different probabilities. And so even if you think that like status quo being the likely thing uh, is going to be how it comes out, like I think most people would have to admit they have some doubt over whether that's true, right? So even if you're like super skeptical on if anything's changing right now, say the 50% chance is that everything stays the same, there's still like a 25, 30% chance that uh, the new world is much more of a buyer's market than it was even before or that the big firms who are using the software already um, to do this work are able to like go down market and pick up transactions that they wouldn't already because they're using AI and other people aren't. Um, that the efficiencies that they're doing are kind of making up for their very high billable hour costs. Uh, and if I think about that possibility, like it seems like a real chance and maybe you think it's an 80% chance Maybe someone else thinks it's a 20% chance, but even if it's 20% chance, like it seems like a real time right now when if I was a lawyer, I would be trying to just cover myself against the possibility that the world is different in the future. Uh, even though that means that like, you know, maybe you don't have to adopt it or go all in financially or something like that on this new world happening. But I think if COVID has taught us something, it's that like unexpected things do happen. Like I think I have to imagine Clio's picked up a bunch of clients in uh, recent months who were sort of skeptical on the idea that they needed to be in the cloud right. and that they quickly realized that the world didn't work out the way that they thought it would. And if they'd sort of done a lower risk thing, which is get into the cloud before COVID hit, they probably would be better. I'm sure they're fine now and I'm sure you guys have great customer service, but like it can't be that easy to make that transition right now for places you can't get into their office. Yeah, we, we, we talk about this being an evacuation to the cloud and we are seeing a lot of that but it's a lot uh an ideal way to go right, right. like the, the smarter not, thing to do is the ideal thing which just, is a planned transition to the cloud yeah and just like cover cover yourself against like is you must think about running a business like it's just cover yourself against things that are you know maybe you don't even think are the most likely scenario but are reasonably likely scenarios and i think if you're a lawyer right now, like I think the idea that there's going to be more use of technology in delivering your work and more use of AI in delivering your work, when there's already a lot of firms that have gone to using these pieces of technology, like it doesn't seem that outlandish to think that that's going to be the way things are done in the future. And if I were a lawyer right now, I, even a very skeptical lawyer right now, I would be putting a lot of effort into trying to understand what's out there and seeing if I could figure out low commitment ways to start using it and get comfortable with it so that on the chance that it does come out uh, to the way that I think it will go, uh, you're ready for it. So Yeah. And I, I think to a, an observation you made, it's almost without question going to be a transformed world at the, the end of this. I don't think we're going back to normal. We're not going back to what it was before and, and thinking really carefully about what is that world going to look like and how can we prepare ourselves to emerge from this, this crisis and from the pandemic stronger and prepared for that new world, I think is where we should all be spending our time. Yeah, like I think it's very hard. Like I know I do not know what the new world's gonna be like, right? But you can think about things that are probable there and try to position yourself to be ready yeah. for a few different things uh, yeah. in that new world. And think about the universe of like possibities. 
Yeah, thinking about what are the universe of possibilities and like, would I be okay? Like one of the business planning things that I was thinking about was just like, wow, COVID really sucks if you're a travel company. Like right. what's equivalent to us of an event that happens that hits our type of company, right? Yeah. And like, could we prepare for that? And so yeah. it's like, oh, the power grid goes down. And it's like, well, we couldn't really prepare too well for that. Like, exactly. if that happens. But um, at least like we kind of thought about it a bit. And like, I think it's uh, a healthy experience to go through. Noah, this has been a, a hugely useful conversation uh, and, and the time has flown by, but I think you've given us a really useful perspective on, on AI and some of the ways it can be deployed into a, a law practice and some of the superpowers it can provide for, uh, for lawyers. And, and, and to conclude, I want to you know, very briefly wrap things up with a, an observation that you're the world's first, or you've authored the world's first book for children uh, that talks about machine learning. Is that right? Uh, it's true, Jack. You know this is true. because uh, I know it's true. I received an early copy of it. Yeah, 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 Jack got an early one. But yes, I'm the author of Robbie the Robot Learns to Read, uh, the world's first, as far as I know, children's book on machine learning. So early days of the company, I used to uh, show lawyers and consultants and accountants the software, and they would say, how did it do that? Like, wow, that's cool. And I'd say, oh, it's machine learning. And I'd be like, do y'all know what that is? And they'd be like, oh yeah, we know what that is. And this is like 2013. And so right. it wasn't such a big thing. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to just give you a little refresher just in case, uh, you know, make sure we're all on the same page. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that'd be really helpful if you could. Right. So <laughs> I got pretty good at giving it a very quick and simple explanation of machine learning. And in the meantime, I had young kids and I was reading, you know, books to them a lot. And some of them were amazing, right? Like there's Good Night Moon and Little Blue Truck. But for all those books, there's some pretty bad kids books out there that yeah. still seem to do commercially decent. And so I thought that there was a market opportunity there that I could probably write a 50th percentile book on like 50th percentile children's book on uh, Robbie the Robot Learns to Read. So here we have 256 rhyming words about a little robot who decides that he would like to learn how to read and he first attempts a rules-based approach to uh, learning how to read. It does not go super well. Uh, he then tries a machine learning based approach uh, inspired by an owl named after my co-founder and it works and uh, he reads by the end. Uh, I guess that's I love it. Surprise. One of my highlights. And there's an Easter Easter egg in there for the computer geeks that there's oh, 256 yeah, words yeah, in the book. Totally. One of the uh, one of my highlights from last year was seeing a video of um, we've got a bunch of people on our research team who have like computer science PhDs and they were at a computer science conference and they took a video from the final ban banquet of one of the hosts of the conference, like a Scottish computer science professor reading from Robbie the Robot Learns to Read in a Scottish accent, like at Love a it. computer science conference. It was awesome. That, that is great. Well, Noah, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you uh, spending the time. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, Jack. Uh, very good to talk. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. 
If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit Clio.com.